This series comes with a content note. Some of what you'll hear is distressing. Please check the show notes for phone numbers you can contact to receive confidential support. In this series, abuse perpetrated by an intimate partner is described as family violence, domestic abuse or domestic violence. We acknowledge that production took place on what always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. Intimate partners share a lot of information and they know a lot of information about each other. So it's no wonder that somebody who's got malintent will actually use whatever information they've got to try and access as much information about you as possible. My name is Tharang Javla and my sister Nikki was killed by her partner in 2015. I'm a writer, broadcaster and anti-violence activist. I'm also the host of There's No Place Like Home. In this episode, we're exploring technology-facilitated abuse, where an abuser uses technology to abuse their partner. That could mean limiting their partner's access to the phone or internet, checking in on them constantly, surveying them, and expecting them to always be available and responsive. The most common type of technology-facilitated abuse in Australia, according to our survey of domestic and family violence frontline workers, was abuse through messaging apps. Karen Bentley is the CEO of Wesnet, and she's an expert in tech-facilitated abuse. So either constantly messaging, like hundreds of messages a day demanding responses right through to really abusive messages, through to making threats using messaging apps. Tech-facilitated abuse can be overt. Think threatening phone calls or constant messages. Or it can be covert, things you can't see, where an abuser monitors their partner's online activity, hacks their emails or tracks their location through apps and Find My Phone services, or even sends them threatening messages via online banking. When two people become romantically involved, they naturally share information about themselves and their lives. It's a way of building intimacy. When you're in a relationship, there is a desire to share. And that can lead on to things like sharing your location, sort of keeping tabs on each other. It might be that you show each other your text messages or messages that are coming in from other people. It may be that you share your passwords to your Netflix account or something like that. Karen says that a lot of this behaviour is really normal, but that abusers can also use the language of sharing to push boundaries and collect information beyond what feels comfortable. It could be a point where it starts to be a bit sort of intrusive, and that's not a very black and white thing, so it can happen very gradually. If your partner is asking to read messages that other people have sent you and that you haven't volunteered to share, that's a behaviour worth asking questions about. When somebody else is starting to demand to see your communications, demanding your passwords, demanding for you to hand over the phone so that they can see what you've been looking at on social media, what you've been posting, what other people are sending you, then that is probably a bit of a red flag. And that could be done in a very subtle way where there's no physical threat, but it could just be a bit of a, you know, if you love me, then you're going to show me this. What are you trying to hide? Abusers could suggest things like sharing social media accounts so that they can control and monitor their partner. This brings me back to Hannah Clark, who was killed by her former partner in 2020. You met Hannah's mother, Sue Clark, in our last episode. In the early days, he convinced her to have a joint Facebook page with him because They would have the same friends, they'd be doing the same posts. But again, that was to control who she could be friends with, who she could communicate with. 
on social media. When it turns into sort of constant monitoring, when you feel like everywhere you go is watched and you have to be checking in or if you're getting text messages saying, where are you right now? Are you with somebody else or are you where you say you are? You know, prove to me that you are where you are. That might start out really innocently but can then cross a line into something more controlling, like you don't necessarily feel free to do and be as you please. Thomas is a man who knows what it's like to be under constant surveillance. More than a decade ago, Thomas started dating Jim, but those aren't their real names. Jim had a gambling problem. He spent all their money and told Thomas not to get the psychological support that he needed. I'd started to see a psychologist about his gambling because I couldn't understand how could someone blow thousands of dollars and I'd get phone calls during the counselling from my ex-partner now wondering how long it'd be what am I saying and the, the counsellor was like oh my god this is like textbook family violence. Tracking is another form of tech facilitated abuse There are lots of different ways that you can track where somebody is be it because you've got find my friends or find my iPhone turned on with your family Karen says that tracking can be dangerous for people who've left a relationship but that it can also be used to stop someone from leaving. Sue says that this is exactly what happened to her daughter, Hannah. He had six phones hidden around the house to listen and monitor what she was doing at all times. Hannah's children told Sue about other ways that their father was monitoring and tracking their mum's movements. The kids would come over and they'd go, Daddy went through Mum's handbag again. And I'd say, well, you know Daddy shouldn't do that that's naughty and you shouldn't go through other people's things. There would be times that she wasn't allowed to contact me, but Hannah was a money school and she couldn't go a day without us talking. So she would make quick phone calls in the car. Bianca is a survivor you met in episode two. That also isn't her real name. Her partner had already geographically isolated her by moving the couple from a city to the small country town that he grew up in. He then installed a program on her computer to monitor Bianca's online movements. She became further isolated and Bianca was unable to safely communicate with her friends and family. At home, I had very little privacy. My ex had placed a keylogger on my laptop. This computer program recorded every keystroke that Bianca made and it sent that data directly to her abusive partner. I just kept wondering how he was finding out what I was telling my close friends over Facebook Messenger and and other messaging apps. Initially, it actually made me think that maybe they were colluding with him and that he was right, that they didn't actually care about me because clearly they were violating the confidence that I had in them by going to him and telling him these things. When it comes to tech-facilitated abuse, if you're worried and you notice that your computer, your phone or your tablet isn't running the way that it used to, whether that's running slowly or the battery is running out more quickly, that could be caused by additional processes. Things like malware and spyware that are secretly running in the background. I honestly didn't even know that this keylogger technology was even a thing until one day my laptop just wasn't working properly and I googled how to fix it and I was taken through a series of steps to use the task manager function and find out what was kind of running around in the background. And I found a file that I couldn't identify and then I Googled the file name and found out what it was and it was a keylogger. And I then just, the sense of guilt that I felt for mistrusting my friends. Karen Bentley says that a lack of tech literacy amongst older generations is ripe for abuse. 
The younger generations are generally much more tech savvy and for older women in a relationship where there is technology being used, there might be, you know, I'm in a relationship, he's offered to take over and set up all the accounts and have control of all the technology in the house. It's a bit like the finances. Sometimes in a partnership, one partner will take over the finances and start to do most of the work around that. It can also happen in relationships around tech. Be especially alert to a new partner offering to set up accounts for you. This is most commonly a genuine act of care and support, but not always. It is a pretty common tactic that we see, which is that the abuser takes over control of the tech. Think about how transparent they're being about what they're installing on your device. Are they teaching you how to use it? And how do they react if you don't want to share your password with them? It's a very early part of the relationship. It might be a pattern of behaviour. And, oh, don't you worry about that. I'll take over that. I can set all that up for you. I'll set up this account. I'll set up that account. So they've got the password. They've got control to the email. That can happen, particularly for people who are less tech savvy and who might feel a bit sort of flummoxed by the new technology. Once Bianca knew that her social media accounts were being monitored, she changed her online behaviour. From then on, I guess, my social media was carefully curated present a certain picture of normality, to tell the world how wonderful my husband was, to crack jokes and interact with my friends that way, um, put memes on there that didn't really convey what was going on at home. Having to use social media in this way created a kind of effective amplification of that isolation in a way. And having people who love me in reach, but also out of reach, I could see pictures of them and their families on Facebook and desperately want to connect, but it wasn't as easy as clicking on the messenger icon and having an open conversation about anything, really, because I knew that nothing was private. Social media platforms can often be used to shape and project a false narrative of the perfect couple. There's often a staging or a presentation of a life or how things are going, which is very positive on social media. It is very possible to display on social media that everything looks very happy and very rosy. Tech-based abuse and surveillance often ramps up when a partner leaves and the perpetrator needs more creative ways to reach their victim. Quite often, if there's not even been any tech abuse before, what we have seen is that upon separation, once the abuser loses physical proximity to their victim, then the abuser starts to think about, well, how else can I get to them? The New South Wales Domestic Violence Death Review Team found that 65% of women killed by a former partner between 2000 and 2014 had ended the relationship in the previous three months. We know when a relationship ends, often people go, right, I don't want to be connected to you through social media or I'm going to change my phone number or I'm going to cut off these ways of being connected to you. We know that people who are using abuse in relationships are always going to look for new ways of perpetuating that abuse. Moo Bolch, a veteran frontline worker and the chair of Our Watch, points out that separation is a time of great risk and a time when people ramp up their abuse. And this was certainly the case for Stacey. The technology facilitated abuse really skyrocketed after we broke up. He harassed me incessantly via any communication platform he could get his hands on. My phone would ding all day and all night with abusive texts, emails and social media messages. The content of the messages was obviously horrible, but it was the constancy of them. 
that was so unbearable. I just felt like I couldn't escape. In her 2014 research on technology-facilitated stalking, Delaney Woodlock found that by stalking a person, perpetrators create this sense of omnipresence that erodes spatial boundaries and makes victims feel like it's impossible to escape their perpetrator. Probably the cruelest thing that he ever did was threaten to publicise some deeply private information about me if I didn't drop the IVO. And when I didn't comply with his ultimatum, he posted about it on social media and he tagged me. An apprehended violence order, an AVO, or an intervention order, an IVO, which Stacey just mentioned, is a court-imposed protection order. What Stacey's ex did to attempt to get her to overturn it is something called doxing. It involves threatening to reveal someone's identity, their private information or their personal details without their consent. Here in Australia, we have a world-leading body to hold perpetrators accountable. We're the first online harms regulator. That was eSafety Commissioner Julie Inman Grant. We're the first country that has a regulator like this as part of that group that has a program called eSafety Women, which is really about training domestic violence frontline workers, whether they're social workers or allied health workers or police, to look for and understand the signs of technology-facilitated abuse and how to help women experiencing that. Karen Bentley says that doxing is one of the many ways that tech-facilitated abuse can occur. So they might embarrass somebody deliberately using social media. And of course, social media has got this massive reach, hasn't it? It's one thing to be embarrassed by somebody at a party or in a small gathering, but it's another thing to be embarrassed on social media where it might be to millions more people. For LGBTQI people, it might be threatening to out them when they're not ready to be outed. Or for a Muslim woman who is caught in a photograph without her hijab on, or that she's unchaperoned with a male, any of those things can be used to shame and humiliate. An extreme form of doxing is when an abuser threatens to publicly share nude images of their partner. Sharing nude images can be part of a healthy relationship, but when those images are then shared without the consent of the person that they show. We see a lot of that happen where, particularly in domestic violence relationships, if you leave me, I will share. I will share those nudes that we took. We also see people being coerced into the nude images or into various other sexual activities that are recorded. Both WESNET and the eSafety Commission have done a lot of work to not only stop people from sharing these images, but to change how we refer to that behaviour in the first place, which has previously been labelled revenge porn. I'm not going to call it revenge porn. Revenge for what? We don't want to start using inherently victim-blaming language. We should focus on the perpetrators who are perpetuating this distress. Let's call it what it is, image-based abuse. The eSafety Commissioner says that AI, artificial intelligence, is also presenting a worrying new frontier for image-based abuse. What we essentially mean by that is the non-consensual sharing and distribution of intimate images and videos. And this includes deepfakes generated by AI. And we've just started to get some of our first, sadly, uh, deepfake reports in. All of these are a breach of the Online Safety Act. 2022 alone, we've received close to 8,000 image-based abuse complaints. 
And under the Act, we can consider a range of removal and civil enforcement options um, when investigating image-based abuse. The Commission's own research finds that men may share these images as a form of bonding. It has a particularly big impact on women because there is a double standard. We still hear this myth, which is, if you don't want to have your nudes shared, don't take your nudes. But I think one in 10 young Australians who have had their images shared haven't ever taken an image of themselves and they're still having nudes shared because somebody else has taken a photo of them and they may have taken that photo or image or video without their consent. When you factor in that AI can create photos that weren't taken in real life, the ramifications become even more widespread. Thankfully, the eSafety Commissioner has the power to help victim survivors. We know most of the people who come to us just want the imagery taken down. The quicker we can get it down, the more it relieves the distress of the victim survivor. And so we have about a 90% success rate in terms of getting all this content taken down of content that's exclusively hosted overseas. When an abuser realises that their partner is about to leave or when the relationship ends, they may also escalate monitoring behaviours to new levels. This could include brazenly taking over their partner's social media accounts and using that access to manipulate them and their life. It's about things like, well, what can I glean about you? You're not with me anymore, but what are you doing on socials? Can I remember your Netflix password? Oh, and guess what? You've got the same password for every account you own. So I'm just going to use the Netflix password. I know what your email address is. I know what your WhatsApp account is. I know what this is and just use them. This is what happened to Stacey after she left her former partner too. He digitally surveilled me, hacked into my emails, photoshopped obscenities onto my profile picture. He impersonated me by sending emails from my account. He even got into my browser to record a fake search history that supported his bogus accusations against me. This particular tactic is one of the more sophisticated and horrific forms of tech-facilitated abuse. Julie Inman-Grant says that as technology accelerates, so too does the sophistication of this abuse. We've seen everything such as remote manipulation of home thermostats to heat a woman and her children out of the house by turning it up to 50 degrees. We've seen situations where a former partner has programmed the smart TV, so every time the TV's turned on, there's a menacing message that comes across. We've seen drones surveilling safe houses. As cars become more technologically advanced, Julie says that they're also being used as a tool for abuse. People can program the cars to stall the moment a woman drives more than a kilometre or a specified area outside of her home. I think the worst case we had seen was someone who put a former partner's address and said that she was soliciting sex so that people actually showed up at her door, which obviously presented some really scary physical potential harms. So as IoT devices and our refrigerators and our toasters and everything becomes connected and interconnected and can be traced, we need these IoT manufacturers to be thinking about how they engineer out misuse and make sure that it's safe, secure, and it's private, even if you're talking about Alexa or Siri, because that can capture a lot of private information and location-based information about a person. So that kind of menacing, harassing, quiet, interpersonal 
online abuse has a cumulative impact on a woman. Combank Group Executive of Human Resources, Sean Lewis, says there's also another form of tech abuse, and it was only discovered three years ago, but is becoming more common. It's called abuse in transaction descriptions. We discovered through one of our own customers who was experiencing domestic and family violence that her intimate partner was sending her abusive messages using very small transaction amounts and using the messaging field to send abuse. Moo Bolch says that this is an example of just how creative people perpetrating abuse are. We really only started to scratch the tip of the surface in terms of tech-based abuse. Most of the banks now in Australia have responses to abusive transaction descriptions and that's a piece of work that has come from just somebody spotting it one day, which was quite incredible. But as quickly as those sorts of channels of communication are cut off, people will find other ways of doing it, unfortunately. Sean Lewis adds that it's also an example of how difficult it is to police tech-based abuse. And so what we initially did in 2020 was to block abusive messages, which helped to an extent. Unfortunately, a phrase like, I'm watching you, is not necessarily going to appear on a, an abusive language block and could be very innocent. You might send to your teenage child, I'm sending you the 50 bucks, but I'm watching you. Spend it carefully. And because this area is constantly evolving, the avenues for abuse are ever-changing and everyone is potentially at risk. Intimate partners share a lot of information and they know a lot of information about each other. So it's no wonder that somebody who's got malintent will actually use whatever information they've got to try and access as much information about you as possible. So we're all open to that. If you're concerned about safety within your relationship or you're considering leaving, there are some precautions that you can take. Of course, if you're worried about a friend or family member who might be in a violent relationship, consider sharing these safety recommendations. They've been directly adapted from the eSafety Commission. Disable location services on all your devices and avoid checking in to places and venues. Update your settings so that others can't tag you in photos or videos. Enable Bluetooth only when it's needed and remove paired devices when you're not using them. On Apple devices, turn off AirDrop unless you're actively using it. Tech companies are also beginning to build safety into their products and apps to ensure that it's harder to use them to commit abuse. It's a concept called safety by design. So safety by design goes back more than a decade for me when I was working at Microsoft. I was uh, the head of global privacy and safety and I said, hey, we're not doing anything here around preventing personal harms. The only way we're gonna really make the online world safer is if we are building in and baking in the safety protections at the front end. We're assessing the risks and building the protections in rather than retrofitting them after the damage has been done. Some of the biggest tech companies are embedding this into their products. One of the things that we've seen recently with Apple on the iPhone, for example, is a new feature called Safety Check. So if you are planning on leaving and you have left, you can actually activate this thing called Safety Check and you can either go through bit by bit to say, right, these people have got access to all of these bits of my iPhone info, you know, my location or sharing my music or you can just go safety check bang i want everybody out right now turn it all off because i'm disappearing off the grid for a little bit so those types of features we're starting to see built in to technology platforms as they realize 
that cyber safety isn't for a nameless, faceless, scamming fisher based somewhere offshore. It's an intimate partner who's got enormous amounts of information that can give them access to information. If you're concerned that you're being monitored or stalked through technology, Karen says to trust your instincts and document your experiences, but only if you feel safe to do so. This will provide a record of what's happening for the future. Document what's happening. And really importantly with that is how it makes you feel, because that's actually part of the legislation, which is that you feel scared or you feel intimidated or you feel threatened. And so just recording that might be just for yourself. It might be so that you can just sort of trace what is happening. Like, is it getting worse? Or did that really happen? Particularly if there's gaslighting and stuff like that. Westnet has a stalking log that you can use to document what's happening. There are also apps like ARC that can help you to record this information. We'll put them in our show notes, just in case you need them to assist in any future legal proceedings. So, you know, I went out tonight... And I came back and there were 50 text messages saying, where was I? So just noting that not all of them will necessarily be illegal, but most states and territories in Australia have got cyber stalking laws, which talk about a pattern of behaviour. Maybe you take some screenshots if it's safe for you to do so. Like there'll be circumstances for some people where it's actually not safe to take the evidence. Hannah Clark would forward the abusive text messages that her killer sent her onto her mother for safekeeping. He was also very good at if there was nasty text messages or things from him, she would send them to me so that she would then delete them, but there would be a record kept somewhere. So if you have someone you can send things like that to safely, send them away so that there is somebody who has a record of it. If you can keep it safely, It's the best thing you can have if you've got a diary. Hannah kept it at our house. Hannah also had a secret second phone. So she could do phone calls and do things without him being aware. But again, you have to be able to hide that. And it can be quite dangerous if you get caught with that. So it's all a matter of if you can do it safely. Technology is a two-edged sword for perpetrators. Yes, it might give them lots of extra tools to misuse for abuse, but it also leaves a digital trail. And increasingly we're seeing police and courts starting to use those bits of digital evidence as a way to hold abusers accountable. If you're in a relationship and suspect that technology-facilitated abuse might be occurring, know that being unsure is perfectly normal. Sometimes it's really hard to know whether or not it's normal. It's a very grey area, particularly when there's no physical violence. Like if there's just emotional control or psychological abuse or that kind of power and control tactic, sometimes it's really hard to know. And particularly if they're gaslighting you to some say it's all in your head or I'm only doing this because I love you. Nonetheless, there are some questions that you can ask yourself, which have again adapted from the eSafety Commission. Does your partner text you all day and then expect an immediate response? Do they send messages asking what you're doing, who you're with and where you are? Do they want access to your passwords, emails or social media accounts? Do they stalk your social media to see what you post, like or comment on? Do they encourage you to delete your social media or insist that you both have a joint account? Do they buy you a new phone or computer and insist that they set it up for you? 
Do they seem to know information from your private conversations, messages or emails? Do they pressure you to send intimate pictures or threaten to share intimate images without your consent? Do they control your finances or restrict your access to your bank cards and online accounts? These are all red flags for technology-facilitated abuse. If you feel like you're able to do so safely and without being monitored or tracked, you can also find support online on websites like eSafety. We also offer webinars and seminars on, uh, on how women can protect themselves from technology-facilitated abuse. The best thing that you can do if you think this is happening is, you know, just take a look on the website. We've had a lot of people say, oh, I didn't actually realize what was happening to me. You know, I thought I was going crazy or I thought I was forgetting things, but this is actually a thing that people do on a fairly regular basis. And what we try and do on the website is show specific ways that people can protect themselves online. Anya, who you met in the last episode, used the internet to investigate whether her partner, David, was abusing her. The friends say that if you are spending enough time coming up with various questions to ask Reddit about your dating life, about whether your partner is potentially sociopathic, narcissistic, has a personality disorder, or behaves in controlling and abusive ways. If you think the question, then you likely have hit on something that is happening. It might not be physical, it might be the beginning stages, but every forum I've read, every chat I've had with girlfriends, everyone I've spoken to, everyone who's lived this and experienced it, says the same thing. If you're asking the question, it's because there's something wrong with the behaviour. If someone you care about is in a relationship where technology-facilitated abuse is happening, Bianca says that you need to carefully identify spaces where your loved one can talk openly. Don't assume that their phone or any of the technology is safe. If you're worried about the person, approach them in a place and at a time where it is safe for them to disclose or speak more freely about what's happening. They may still not want to talk about it. They may still believe that the safest course of action for them is to say nothing. It took six months of planning for Hannah Clark to be able to leave her killer and move in with her parents. We had to go start buying stuff without him getting too suspicious. We had it all ready for her, and every time she went to leave, he'd find out. So he would do a surprise. Oh, we're going to go away for the weekend, you know, take her away that weekend. That was when they all realised that Hannah's killer had multiple phones around the house to record and monitor her. Hannah got to a stage, she'd go out to the backyard and talk to Sue when she wanted to talk to her. So there was six months in the planning for her to actually break away. When she was able to escape, Hannah left her car in a McDonald's car park in case the vehicle was being tracked. She walked out with three garbage bags of clothes and belongings, told the kids I'll allowed to grab a couple of toys each, and that was it. In and out, it doesn't just happen straight away, but you've got to be patient. When you're ready, we're ready to take you. Come straight in. We also need people to be speaking out when it's not okay. We have to have that bystander intervention. I don't think it hurts to make it known that you're there for them and that you can tell that there's something going on that you don't know what it is. You're open to hearing it. You're not going to run away if they do tell you and that if they wanted an ally, if they wanted someone to go with them to ask for help or to make a phone call or to hold their hand in any number of circumstances that they might be in in the future that you're there, 
Next week on There's No Place Like Home, we'll explore financial abuse. It was my birthday and I woke up and he drained my bank account and he wasn't with me at the time. I I went home and I just woke up that morning and thought, this is the moment that I need to just call the police and not even second guess it. See you then. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, who are committed to helping end financial abuse through ComBank Next Chapter. No matter who you bank with, if you're worried about your finances because of domestic and family violence, you can contact ComBank's Next Chapter team. Contact them on 1800 222 387 within Australia or visit combank.com.au slash nextchapter. If you need help or advice, please check the show notes for phone numbers for confidential support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. It'll help these important stories to reach more people's ears. For more information about There's No Place Like Home or to join the movement, please head to futurewomen.com. This episode was produced by Jamila Rizvi, Emily Brooks, Mel Fulton, Sally Spicer, Hannah Fahur and Tarang Chavla. Editing by Bad Producer Productions, artwork by Patty Andrews.